This podcast is sponsored by the Center for Digital and Visual Literacy at Agnes Scott College. Welcome to the Halloween edition of the Digital Breakdown. For this episode, which is entitled The Digital Native and the Digital Immigrant, we are exploring what it means to become familiar with modern technology at different periods of your life. To paraphrase Lynn Reed in the article, Digital Natives and Digital Immigrants, digital natives are individuals who were raised with frequent access to and usage of technology, while digital immigrants are folks who grew up without much or any access to technology. While age is most often the significant separator between these two classifications of people, Location and economic status can be also determinate factors. In today's discussion about quote-unquote natives and immigrants, I'm joined by two members of the Agnes Scott community, Dr. Amy Patterson, who is a public health professor and a digital immigrant, and Lisette Rojo Ramirez, who is a student and a digital native. To celebrate Halloween, each question asked had a dash of spooky added to it. You'll see what I mean. Let's get into it. So, uh, welcome to the Digital Breakdown. This is the CDVL's podcast, and I'm the host. We have a couple episodes underneath our belt, but this is part of a revamping of the podcast, and eventually we're going to be marketing it. So, I'm excited to have both of you guys joining me for today. Thanks uh, for having us. Yeah, no yeah, problem. Happy um, to be here. So, if you guys would mind introducing yourselves. Sure. I am Amy Patterson. I'm an associate professor in the Department of Public Health at Agnes Scott. This is my eighth year at the college, and I'm excited to be here. Yeah, um, and I'm Lisette Rojo Ramirez, and I'm a senior at Agnes Scott College. I'm soon to be graduating in May, which is fun and exciting, and I'm currently studying business management in our also artificial intelligence. Cool. And I am Cy Williams. I work as part of the ITS. And as I established earlier, I'm the host of this podcast. So let's just jump right into the interview. First, Amy, do you think technology is a trick, a treat, or both? I think for me, it's both in that I have greatly benefited in terms of thinking about teaching. I feel like my teaching is enhanced dramatically through the availability of digital technologies. The trick element for me is that having, you know, a smartphone in my hands constantly makes it harder for me to pull away sometimes. And so I feel like I'm a little less focused or I don't spend as much time on other things that I might like doing. I think the same is true for my students that it's hard for me to tell sometimes, you know, what students are doing with technology during class. It seems like it can be a distraction, but it also can greatly enhance what we're doing. Yeah, I would say the same that it's both, you know, the treat is being able to communicate with other people, um, getting to watch Netflix on my bed. Like I, I have a lot of things that I can be doing on my phone and that I have access to because of the internet. Um, but also, like you were saying, Amy, it's a trick because I do spend a significant amount of time just on my phone and when I should be studying, when I should be like doing chores or something else. And also, I think because of the pandemic, it has been a real, it has been a real treat just having it at our disposal. But there's also so many people that don't have it. Yeah, like just people who can't afford to have it. Like there's a lot of limitations if you don't have a certain type of technology. So that's just the trick part, I think. Yeah, I agree with that sentiment. Access to technology is vital 
these days and without it it's pretty difficult to navigate <laughs> the covid world so think about technologies that are part of y'all's everyday life what are they and how did you integrate them um for me i think i mean i think about both hardware and software in terms of things that are part of my everyday life i seem to spend most days now sitting in front of a computer all the time as well as my phone i was pretty late to get a smartphone i was very resistant to it and so i and i still have my flip phone in case i ever want to go back but computers on the other hand i have been very quick to adopt and and to use pretty extensively so i i would say in terms of software you know i'm using the college's learning platforms i'm on canvas most of the day i use zoom but i've also tried to be creative in terms of my classes and integrating things that health professionals would benefit from knowing and using so we use infographic design software in my classes because that's something that's a growing area of interest within public health i have students use their deportfolios because web design is a really helpful and useful skill to have i use some maps So just Google Maps, but we do some things with mapping to try to visualize trends and factors of public health. And then for communication, you know, I have not jumped on the bandwagon of using lots of different social media platforms. I need to. Um, I'm still sort of stuck on Facebook. I had a Twitter account; it got hacked, so I canceled it. <laughs> but I haven't been as quick to to integrate thinking about different kinds of messaging and social media types of programs when I think about my teaching. So I, I think those are the main things that I use, other than Zoom now these days all the time. Yeah, I think as a student, it's really hard not to use technology. I use it every day. I can't think of like a day I never use like technology throughout the day. Um, I just have my phone. It's always on me. I have my computer for classes. I have an iPad for taking notes. Like everything is just jumbled up together. And it's kind of scary, actually, because I can't really see myself functioning without any of these tools because I would get behind in work. I would get behind in like communicating with others. And I also work at the CDBL. So we're doing a lot of Photoshop stuff, a lot of uh, graphic design with technology. I'm also, I also have a website for the digital portfolio. So I'm constantly editing. Yeah, like I'm always using technology, which is a good thing, but it could be a bad thing. Like if something ever happens to it, that's basically all I do is technology. Yeah. <laughs> It's interesting to hear you say that because I still, I, I think this is where being the digital immigrant comes in, that I still prefer to take notes on paper, right? There's something mm -hmm. about that tactile process of writing, which is how I learn to learn that still resonates for me in a way that I'm not comfortable reading online as much. I know that I need to, and that's more sustainable, but my desire is always to still print things out so I can write on them. And I think that's an area where my students have an advantage that, you know, you all grew up reading things online, you know, taking notes on tablets and, and writing online. It's interesting to see that kind of a divide, even though I use lots of technology, my brain is still sort of wired into hand writing yeah it's interesting because i actually i never thought about getting an ipad but i actually won it um with agnes scott they did a raffle and so i won an ipad and i'm like might as well use it for notes yeah uh, yeah <laughs> but it's interesting now like how technology still has that tactile thing like i got an apple pen so i'm literally doing the same thing that i would have in my physical notebooks but i'm just using technology and it's like it's everywhere and i can take it with me everywhere i don't have to haul a bunch of books because they're all in one tiny device which is super cool so when thinking about like specific things like the apple pen or specific software 
did either of y'all have a methodology for incorporating that into your life or did it just happen? I feel like it just sort of happened. I mean, for me, it was, I tend to be a little bit of a laggard with things that I have to spend money on, Um, not with other things like, you know, teaching pedagogical innovations. I'm one of the first person to try things, but I was, you know, I got a a DVD player, like much after my grandmother, you know, only after Blockbuster no longer carried VHS tape. And so I feel like in my case, it was more when I felt like I needed certain technologies to be able to do the types of things I wanted to do. You know, I got a smartphone because I started going to academic conferences and everything was online, you know, and I wasn't going to carry my computer around to access the conference program. And I just found like more and more places were expecting me to have a smartphone. Computers, I I started using a computer in middle school, so I don't really remember as much, you know, that process. My parents got a computer and I would type out my assignments. That was more because it was new and cool and exciting, you know, that, that that was incorporated. It wasn't required. Other things I feel like I, anytime Agnes Scott offers a training for faculty on any new kinds of technology, I always attend those sessions and take opportunities to learn and, and just think about what will be helpful for me and, and what won't be teaching. I agree that for me, it just kind of happened. And also in terms of accessibility, my parents, they never had a computer until I asked for one because I was constantly doing work on the library and staying like after hours at school, just trying to finish up. So that kind of was like, I need this, therefore I should probably get it. But yeah, everything is like in terms of accessibility. I also agree with like spending money. I don't like to spend money. Like I'm a college student. <laughs> I don't have that much to spend anyway. So everything that I do, like in terms of technology, I want to get it for free, like through the school, which is an awesome resources resource to have for like Adobe Photoshop or other registered things that they have. Um, so I don't have to buy that. So I think basically it's just accessibility, just Trying things out also, um, I do a lot of trying things out. I download apps, see how this works. Um, in terms of like my iPad, I haven't bought any apps. Everything that I use is free and I want it to stay like that. I'm just seeing how it goes and if I need it or not. Also in terms of smartphones, I got my first smartphone when I was in high school, which is pretty late considering now that my sister, she's in elementary school in fifth grade and she already has a phone, um, which is crazy. But yeah, that was because I was the oldest and I was staying after school a lot. I just needed something to notify my parents. So yeah, everything's just, as I go, I just keep adding on to my collection of technology. I think here it's that that combination of opportunity and necessity, right? Some Mm -hmm. things we adopt because we have to adopt, others we adopt because there's opportunity for that. I find in terms of integration, I also, I listen a lot. And so I listen to my colleagues, my peers, and when they mention something, I'm going to go try it out. You know, I may Mm -hmm. not adopt it, but I'll, I'll try it out and see if it would enhance, you know, any part of my life or my teaching yeah also YouTube YouTube is great like yes. <laughs> when I bought a smartphone I wanted to go to like see all the specs like is this worth it for the amount of money like how are you using it so it's just great doing research using technology that I already have doing research to get more technology this is where I differ from my 
my father and my aunt, who both really love reading owner's manuals, like paper <laughs> owner's manuals for things. And I'm always like, but you could just watch a video for that, you know, to learn how to use this particular thing. You don't have to carry that manual around with you. Lots of generational differences. And you're your sister will even more so. So speaking of the future, what are some ways that both digital natives and digital immigrants can approach the great unknown of tech together? You know, I think we all, we take turns in being the leaders into that unknown, you know, new new advancements and developments. And so I think I would imagine that some, some of the natives, just because we're older and we're in different positions, we're in leadership positions, we're in teaching positions, may need to lead the way for introducing new things in terms of that necessity. When we think about opportunity and necessity, there may be things that we introduce, but I learn just as much from my students as I learn from other sources, probably more about different technologies. So I, I think this is a really great place where we see younger generations being able to take on leadership roles. I tell my students this all the time. You know, when we think about public health, a lot of the people who are in senior leadership positions went to college before there, you know, there was email, before there were really, before we had the internet. And so there's such need for young people to really step up and take on leadership roles because you're more familiar, you know, you're more comfortable with learning new technologies. And so I think there's great room for collaboration in that process. Yeah, I like the term leadership, like being leaders of technologists, because I see that in my home. My mom, she was taking English classes at um, my sister's elementary school, and she would just physically walk down and physically have a book and being able to talk to um, her teacher face to face. But after the pandemic hit, she now has to use Zoom like all of us. So it was really hard. She got used to it, just even opening up a laptop, like turning it on, making sure it's plugged in, like what if the Wi-Fi goes out, how to troubleshoot that. It was pretty intense from her perspective. Like she's also an immigrant, like my whole family, we are immigrants. So we don't have that much access. So I, that was an opportunity just coming to the U.S. and being able to take a hold of technology. But I do see myself often as a leader. I'm also like the eldest in my family. So it's up to me to make sure that my siblings are turning in their homework online and yeah, it's, it's pretty hard. It's like learning a whole new language. Like you don't know what you're looking at. What I would say is just try it out. Like that's how I learned technology. I just tried it out. I learned through reading, through researching, just pushing buttons, seeing where that take, takes me. Yeah, just trying it out, not being afraid and also being your own leader if you don't have anybody else in your household or Anybody else that you can reach out to, just see how it goes. I think that not being afraid is one of the marks of the digital native, though. You know, that if you're less comfortable with it, you didn't grow up with lots of different technologies. You know, from the hardware standpoint, you may be more worried about breaking things or just that, you know, you might do something and have things go terribly wrong. I play that same role with my parents a lot. And I and I know that as I grow older, younger people will play that role for me as well. We always have that digital translation happening across mm -hmm. generations. Yeah, for sure. So that brings me to my next question. Let's say you guys are both immortal and 20 years from now, even though that's not necessarily immortal, but let's just say you live forever. Uh, <laughs> 
What do you think a digital immigrant will look like during that time period? It's harder for me to imagine that there will be a lot of digital immigrants at that point. I mean, I think about, I work a lot in African contexts where people may not have landlines, they may not have computers, but most people have access to a smartphone. You know, even if they don't own it, they have access to somebody else's smartphone. And so I think in terms of phone technology, I can't imagine that, you know, 20 years ago, we're going to have a ton of immigrants to that. Computer technology, I think we may have more because those are you know, harder to access types of technologies. But I, I think it's going to be more and more, as the set was already talking about, you know, more marginalized sectors of communities and our global community are going to be the ones who are making that transition. I think in the U.S., I mean, I think about my nieces they have been comfortable with smartphones since they were tiny, you know. So I'm not I'm not sure what that digital immigrant looks like at that point. Yeah, it's kind of hard to say because I think even 20 years ago before, like people were thinking about like flatline cars, something crazy like that. So I really can't picture what it would be like in the future. But I do think that there's going to be a transition of how people use technology. Like right now, it's just like texting people um, that could be like the limitations of like a native right now, just being able to call someone and that's all they need. But in the future, and also considering we're all kind of still virtual and it happened all of a sudden, just that transition of how how you're using technology and also the space open for artificial intelligence and using technology that can do things by itself and all you need is a voice command. I think it's that's going to be like the next step and we're already seeing like a bunch of transitions of even Siri just being part of AI right. and yeah it's just crazy so I think being able to use that transitioning into using those types of technologies. I think what I was thinking of is that comfort with learning that I, I just I feel like those of us who have already had you know, several different types of new technologies introduced in our lifestyle, in our lifetime, have learned to learn those. But then, you know, I, I think about my grandmother and while she, in her lifetime, you know, she saw the introductions of cars, she saw the introductions of, of lots of, you know, microwaves, lots of things. She never got comfortable with computers. So um, I might be optimistic when I'm thinking that we all have already ad developed that digital adaptability to be able to learn new things. I may be totally wrong. <laughs> but yeah. You're right. We will see lots of new technologies developing and they will look very different from what we're comfortable with now. Yeah, that actually reminded me, like when you talk about microwaves, because um, my grandma still lives in Mexico and she's using a, I don't know what kind of stove it is, but it's basically fire. You're basically cooking on fire. And my mom bought her an electric stove and she hasn't touched it. She just doesn't like it. She doesn't feel comfortable around it. She thinks it's dangerous, even though like having an open flame is also dangerous. So there's like, I guess that stubbornness of not wanting to transition, which is completely optional. If you don't really need an electric stove and the one that you have is already working, you can just keep using that. Yeah. So people can make choices, have options. When we look at the science of sort of how, how things spread and how fast they spread and who's more likely to adopt things earlier or later, mm -hmm. a lot of it has to do with the thing that we're trying to get people to use or do, right? Do they see it as compatible with their lifestyle? Mm -hmm. Do they see a clear benefit, right? In your grandmother's case, she probably doesn't see an advantage. So why would she change, right? You know, those kinds of things would be things we would look at. So I think that will continue to drive 
what technologies get adopted and what which ones fizzle before they ever really catch mm-hmm. on if people don't see a clear advantage or they're not easy to use or not compatible with their lifestyle things are not going to spread as well. So what scares you about the future of tech? I think I, I mean, you know, I, I always have some degree of concern about confidentiality of data and, you know, the protection as more and more of our information goes online. I don't think that's necessarily going to be a, a new thing in the future. It's already a thing, but that is a concern. I worry that we're going to have a bigger divide between the haves and the have-nots if more and more of our high level jobs, our programming jobs, or, you know, not so much the labor jobs, but the technology types of jobs. I worry that we will have more people who are left behind who don't have access, as Lisette was talking about. But I think I think those are probably my two concerns. I have concerns about safety as we move towards you know, more and more self-driving cars or drones that might be, you know, appearing anytime that might cause accidents or things like that. But those are all current, not so much yeah, I think because my minor is in artificial intelligence and I'm really happy that it's at Agnes where it's like liberal arts and we often talk about just the ethics of technology. And I think that's one of my fears or the dangers that I see is how is this technology going to be used? There's already data that's being used about incarcerated people and or how can you predict whether a person is likely to become incarcerated or not? And it's, also has to do a lot with like racism and just ethics of the country as a whole, which takes part in the technology that's being created. So it's the question of who is building this technology, like who is in charge of this, which is something that we all need to think about. And also like what, the, where the data is coming from and are we allowing this to happen? Like, do we have a voice in this? So I think trying to combat that is getting more diversity in technology, like in the positions of leadership, where if you are a person of a minority group within that high level technological field, I guess, and you can be able be there to make these decisions that can potentially stop hurting a bunch of people. So that's one of the dangers that I see. I'm so glad that people are like you are going into this field who have the type of training to be thinking about these things before the technology is developed because it's so much harder, you know, to put the genie back in the bottle once it's already here. So we need to plan for the protections that have to be in place before things are created rather than trying to scramble afterward. Both of you mentioned uh, concerns about privacy and data in terms of the future of tech. How do you all feel that our personal information could be utilized in a positive manner or a negative manner? It's harder for me to imagine the positives. Um, Lisa, you may have more examples from things that you're working on. You know, I, I worry about from a healthcare perspective, it's a huge advantage to have portable online health information if you're seeing providers in different hospital systems. But I also worry that that could be used by insurance providers if we lose the pre-existing conditions clause of the Affordable Care Act, that it might prevent people from getting insurance. And I worry about job discrimination of other kinds as well. I think those are my two main worries are around, you know, access to healthcare and employment. Yeah. One of the benefits is that gathering data, surveying people that leads to making decisions that could be really beneficial to people who need help and are part of these groups that really do, like you want to demonstrate and show that this is a problem. So you gather data, you use data for that purpose. But also like one of the downsides is 
if you allow people to use your data, you're basically being tracked down. Because I know if you put your location on, on your phone, it literally tracks you down, like where you have been and why you have been there, like during the times of what. And there can be assumptions made for that. Yeah. So I think that's one of the problems, how these assumptions get made either for the benefit of a group of people or potentially harmful and you being a target in that. Yeah, I remember them talking about the facial identification technologies they were using mostly against protesters who were out on the field Mm -hmm. for Black Lives Matter and how they were able to track them down on Facebook and just all this concerning. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Data is great. I'm a researcher. I collect a lot of data, but, you know, a lot of the data that we are collecting now is not in the context of research in the context of institutional types of research. So if if you are affiliated with an academic institution or a hospital, you have to go through an ethical review. If you're working at Google or Facebook, you you know, the, the data you're collecting are not reviewed by an ethics committee in that same way so that there's sort of oversight over those. And I, and I think that's part of what concerns me, that there's lots of exciting things that we can do with data, but we need to have some sort of external voice <laughs> that kind of has a, a, a role in the ethics of how those data are stored and used. Yeah, I think with like big companies nowadays, it's all about like making money, gaining a lot of new customers. It's all about like numbers of benefiting the company itself and not necessarily the general public. So they're making those types of decisions. And I agree that there should be like an external voice, just subconscious or consciousness that it, it needs to be reviewed and just looked at by another person outside of the company. They need to hire you who has had training in the ethics of these things, you know, or or your counterparts to do that. I think that would make me feel much more comfortable (laughs) that these liberal arts students everywhere. Well, that was a great conversation, y'all. But I really appreciate y'all taking the time to be interviewed and have a conversation with each other and with myself. So any parting thoughts? Well, thank you for giving us this opportunity. I enjoyed talking with you, Lisette. This was fun. And learning a little bit more about what's happening in our AI program from a liberal arts perspective. That's really exciting. And I, I think for me, I still feel like the treats outweigh the tricks. Um, We just have to be thoughtful and um, intentional about what we're doing when we adopt new technologies. Yeah, thank you, Sai, for having us here. I really enjoyed being part of this podcast. And I also want to encourage people, like even though we did talk about the ethics and all the um, negative things that happen out of technology, technology is really great. And I think there needs to be more diversity, definitely, especially for women and other people who there's just not enough of us. So just want to encourage everyone who's listening to just take that into thought and not be scared of this huge revolution of technology. Yeah, great parting thoughts. And I agree that we need to foster leadership and ethics going forward into this great unknown. So once again, I appreciate y'all's time and uh, y'all have a great rest of the day. Thanks so much, Sai. Thank you. That concludes our Halloween episode on digital natives and digital immigrants. To our listeners, what do you consider yourself to be? A digital native or a digital immigrant? Do you have a fear that technology will outrun you? Send your answers episode ideas, or general suggestions to our website linked on our Anchor page or leave a message for us on Anchor. 
Special thanks to Dr. Amy Patterson and Lisette Rojo Ramirez for the interview and Hannah Brindell for the audio editing of and research for this episode. This episode was produced by Cy Williams and Anastasia Owen. Thanks for listening and stay tuned for more episodes.